0: is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello,
1: hello. Wednesday the 18th of January, it's good to have you along this afternoon. I'm Michelle Stanley with you on the Country Hour until half past one. And there is so much to chat about today, including the potential for Kimberley cattle to make their way into the Top End.
2: Yeah, I've had conversations with pastoralists towards the East Kimberleys there and their discussions are already around about having to put plans in place to potentially go into the eastern seaboard or through the Northern Church because they realised that this uh, infrastructure may not be in place to go through their normal channels.
1: Yeah, with those road closures and damage in the west, Darwin Port could well see a few extra heads going through this year. You'll get the details before one. And I wonder whether you've ever had an experience with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Plenty of people have, but when you live out in the bush and there's an emergency at night, landing can be an issue. So before 130, you'll hear how some pastoralists are getting around it.
3: When we were setting them out, obviously there's two sides to an airstrip. We had our eldest child walking along one side and my husband was on the other just walking along lighting it. and so that was great, you just you walk up and both sides are lit at the same time, really simple.
1: That and plenty more coming up in the next hour and if you would like to get in touch this afternoon, the text number zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven. First up this afternoon, though, it's been more than six months since the varroa mite was first detected in New South Wales. Since then, the bee parasite has been found on more than 100 properties. Authorities are continuing efforts to eradicate the parasite by destroying hives in high-risk areas and placing movement restrictions on the industry right across New South Wales, And that's making it harder for territory beekeepers to source new queen bees from interstate. So some are now deciding to start grafting their own. Max Rowley caught up with one Catherine beekeeper to find out more.
4: Um, So I just got a cell starter here, which is a special um, beehive we've made up has no queen in it and it's full of young bees, So, that, because young bees are the bees that feed the baby bees. G'day, I'm good Sam Curtis. I'm a beekeeper up in Catherine Norman Territory. Um, when we make our graft, we drop it in here and we'll come back after a day and see if they start drawing on the cell cups. Um, this morning I've been trying to graft some queen cells. So what we do with that is we go into a hive with a queen we like. So she's nice and calm and makes lots of bees and makes lots of good honey. And we'll take little grubs that are about four days old out of there and we put them in a queen cup, which is a slightly bigger cup for the queen to grow in. Because queens um, grow vertically whereas normal bees grow horizontally. So we stick that grub in a bigger cup upside down. They'll think she's meant to be a queen and they'll turn her
5: into one. So you're basically trying to manipulate the hive to, yep. to get them to, to grow a new queen. Yes, exactly.
4: Then after we've made our graft from the queen we like, we then put her into what we call a cell starter colony, which is has no queen in it. So they're in a big hurry to make a new queen. And we introduce about 45 grafted cups, and we usually get about 40 of them turned into queen cells. And then in 10 days... want to hatch out and a queen go get ready for mating so after seven days we'll take them out of that starter colony and put them in an incubator just in case we grafted some slightly too old larvae because that will make the queen hatch earlier because if the queen hatches too early she'll come out and she'll destroy all the other cells because when a hive replaces a queen they make more than one but they only need one queen so the first one to hatch out goes out and she'll sting all the other queen cells um, to prevent any other queens coming out. Yeah, right. Sounds like quite a delicate process. Yes. You've got to make sure you get to the hive at the right time or otherwise you can lose all your hard work.
5: And is this, a, is this about replacing uh, an existing queen bee
4: or, or expanding your hives? Um, it's a bit of both. At the moment we're mainly concerned with expanding or rep- making up losses. But once we've done that, I'll go through all my bees and look for the really bad underperforming queens and replace them with
5: new ones. How often would you need to replace a queen?
4: Ideally, you want to replace your queen between one and two years because you want a young, vigorous queen in your hives because they usually perform the best. And
5: when you are replacing a queen or or expanding your hives, uh, do you usually graft yourself or are you sourcing those queen bees from elsewhere?
4: I generally try and source queen bees but we're having a little bit of trouble sourcing bees this year so we're going to do a bunch of grafting and make our own queens. And most of the time the bees that I make up here outperform the bees that I buy in. It's just that buying queens in saves us a lot of time. How does it
5: save you time?
4: Um, For us to make a queen, it takes about a month at best but normally six weeks for a proper turnaround on queening whereas if I order them in, I can order about... Uh, 100 or 200 how many ever I want in one go and I have them all here they're already mated and I can put them in a box and I've got a hive within a week instead of six weeks. Right and during that six week
5: period you, you can't use that hive for, for the work that you need. Yes
4: so we have to just put them aside and leave them alone till the queen's mated because if we interrupt the process they can um, reject it. Where do you usually source your bees from I normally try to get my bees out of Queensland um, just so I can get as close to the climate up here as I can because I think bees from colder places won't do as well up here in the hot. But that's been harder? Yes. um, Since the varroa might incursion, in New South Wales, New South Wales is on a big bee lockdown and a lot of the queen breeders are in New South Wales. So the fellows in Queensland and Victoria and all that are trying to fill in the gap which means it's very hard for everybody to get enough queens. And so how much longer is it taking you to, to get queens from Queensland? It takes about two months' wait from when I order them, whereas before I could usually just ring around and get some within a week.
5: If these wait lists continue or, or get worse for accessing queen bees from interstate, what kind of impact do you see that having on, on the Territory?
4: I can see an initial drop in total bee numbers in the Territory, which would potentially affect our uh, melon industry up here and our pumpkin industry because all the beekeepers up here would have to learn how to make queens and get their stock re-established like right now is coming into probably the best time to make queens in my opinion that and around august when it's it's cool and the bees can fly readily is the when we have our best success making queens so if that's the case farmers will just farmers and beekeepers will have to wait till these periods of time and then to replenish their stocks in the meantime they'll just have to put up with the numbers that are left because the queens that they will produce will be subpar or not last very long.
5: Where it is at the moment do you see that having an impact on on, for instance uh,
4: crops this year coming season? I'm not sure about this year but if it continues the way it's going we might have an issue getting enough bees next year which could impact the melon industry because we need about four to five hives per hectare to pollinate melons effectively and on some farms you need up nearly 700 hives to do that. So do you think the authorities are taking the right approach in New South Wales? I think eradicating it is the best option and if they can achieve that that'll be optimal Um, but at some point they're just going to have to stop killing all the bees in New South Wales because they can't kill all the bees in New South Wales and in Queensland just to stop this mite. So at some point they're going to have to say it's here or we got rid of it. Back to the hives Um, how long before
5: you've got a a new queen here and all these bees buzzing around,
4: um, you know, get stuck into work? Um, Well the new queen will hatch after 14 days and then after another 14 days she'll have finished her mating And then we potentially have another production colony.
1: That's Catherine Beekeeper, Sam Curtis, speaking with Max Rowley about how he's getting around some of the issues sourcing queen bees. He's grafting his own. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 20 to 1. Next up, talking weather and the impacts of it across the north in all primary industries and states as well. At first, though, here's Claire Bowden. It's called Let It Rain. From the New South Wales South Coast, now living in Nashville, it's Claire Bowden. That one, Let It Rain. Hello, I'm
6: Sonoma Madikari Rana. I'm a CDO graduate working as a technical officer in Native Rice Project. I love this job because um, there are so many opportunity to learn, Enjoy listening to Country Hour.
1: 16 to 1, Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Extensive road damage in the Kimberley could see pastoralists turn to Darwin to offload cattle. Until parts of the Great Northern Highway are repaired, producers in the East Kimberley won't be able to export live cattle out of the Broomport. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association Chair Jack Andrews says the options of markets for some producers are limited.
2: The reality for pastoralists that are between the two areas of roads that don't exist at this point in time is basically nil. There is no option for moving to the markets. We're quite literally cut off from our our markets, I guess our source of income. So the the construction of those roads and the speed at which that will occur will be paramount to these businesses moving forward.
7: When would cattle usually be starting to hit the market from the Kimberley and what would those markets usually look like?
2: So some pastoralists that have the ability or certainly have the highway frontage to have lines of cattle available early in the season would move as early as February, a few more coming online in March. So those properties that set the stations up to have early sales would have cattle along the edge of the highway that they can load out even in, in a normal wet season and be able to access markets. So, moving forward, those markets would be your know, you slaughter type cattle going through a processing plant or operation like that, and your and you feeder type cattle into a live export scenario. Obviously, that's going to be compromised in our current situation until the infrastructure is in place that allows that to occur.
7: So, with that in mind, how do you expect markets to change this year, you know, with potentially limited options available for pastoralists looking to sell?
2: It will be interesting. There's obviously rain right across Australia, so it'll be interesting to see what that does for pricing right across the the entire country. Obviously, there's market access for some pastoralists in the Kimberleys to go out through the Northern Territory or through Wyndham, so you would imagine that will remain open to take a guess as to what it will actually do to prices to even estimate at this point, but the reality is pastoralists will Need income, especially these that have been affected by the floods, to move forward. So they will certainly be getting operating as soon as they can, so they can start managing their stock.
7: In terms of where those markets are, do you anticipate more cattle might go east or south or be processed locally? What are you anticipating this year as a result of this massive infrastructure damage?
2: Yeah, I've had conversations with pastoralists towards the east Kimberleys there, and their discussions are already around about having to make or well, certainly. Put plans in place to potentially go into the eastern seaboard or through the northern church because they realise that this uh, infrastructure may not be in place to go through their normal channels. So, but pastorals are certainly looking at options and there is a, a very real chance that the cattle from this part of the world will go elsewhere for sale.
7: Are you expecting live exports out of Broome to be down significantly?
2: That will really depend on how long these roads are impassable. If the roads are up and going relatively soon or in a couple of months, then potentially not. If this is a June-July event before we can actually start moving cattle up and down the roads, then it will certainly affect numbers going out of
0: Broome.
7: And Wyndham potentially could be an alternative option for those in the east, Kimberley, that might normally send their cattle west?
2: Yes, certainly a potential there to go out of Wyndham once again further on, say, through Darwin. And that is why I think that it will affect what's going on through Broome because if the roads aren't open, parcelers will still need a source of income and therefore they'll look for other avenues to market.
7: I suppose when's the best case scenario for you or for, for those in the region in getting access to those markets again?
2: Ideally, we'd like to have access to the markets in in March. Reality may be completely different to that and there's such broad timelines being given between eight to 12 weeks ranging up to four to five months and maybe even longer up to 12 months. That is a pretty daunting thought if we start looking out towards 12 months and, and one that we probably really struggle to find a way around if that is the case.
1: That's Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association Chair Jack Andrews. He was speaking with Steph Sinclair and that road damage has left WA's only major northern abattoir inaccessible. The Kimberley Meat Company sits between Broome and Derby in the West Kimberley where major flooding has occurred in the wake of ex-tropical cyclone Ellie with roads destroyed and no access to cattle, Chief Executive Michael Rapatoni says operations are on hold at the facility.
8: We haven't had infrastructure damage to the abattoir itself, which is great news in the fact that we can process. However, we've lost a major part of our holding yards and obviously the water. We've had to let our processing cattle out into the paddocks to be able to survive the storm itself. So, While we don't have infrastructure damage, we are really isolated through infrastructure and roads being damaged from the Fitzroy all the way into the abattoir itself, restricting movements of cattle and movements of uh, staff.
7: So the abattoir itself is ready to be operational, but it's, it's getting the cattle there to process. That's where the issues
0: are?
8: Correct, correct. We uh, we want to provide an economic solution to the pastures and that's really front and centre of the KMC mind at the moment is how do we execute a plan that we can actually get cattle, particularly cattle that may be struggling with the ability to be fed into the operations to be processed.
7: Are you anticipating that there'll be a fairly significant demand for the abattoir to reopen given that you know there's a lot of pastures that have been washed away with these floods and potentially won't be growing back for some time?
8: We are planning for that and we're executing that plan as we speak and we're working closely, as I said, with main roads, particularly to to get access roads going. So if the cattle's fit to load, we are here as part of our contribution to the industry to provide an economic solution for pastoralists. definitely.
7: Have you got any idea of the, the damage bill that you might be looking at? Uh,
8: still assessing uh, really early days at this stage we said last week if we had 10 to 15 mils of water this week uh, we wouldn't know what we would do with ourselves but uh last night we received 135 mils so it's just the case that we're one month into a three month wet season and you know it is part of the cattle industry in the north but uh yeah obviously with the floods in the last couple of weeks it's it's added to it
1: That's Kimberley Meat Company Chief Executive Michael Rappertone, who was speaking with Steph Sinclair. The WA Emergency Services Minister today told the ABC that it could take another two to four weeks to fix that road or reopen the road, uh, which is impacting the Kimberley Meat Company. It's Great Northern Highway in the West Kimberley, uh, but there's still no word yet on the timeline for the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge, which is impacting those pastoralists in the east.
9: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
1: to one. Australia's largest grower of Kensington Pride mangoes says harvest in North Queensland has been delayed because of severe rainfall in the region. Mambaloo Limited has seven mango farms across Australia. Two in the NT near Catherine, five in Queensland. Kensington Pride and Arto 2 were the main varieties, but they also harvest a few late varieties to fill market gaps. Marie Paconi says is the managing director of Mambaloo Limited. She says the current rainfall hasn't devastated the crop, but it will have a financial impact.
10: Well we've actually had to take in terms of this just this last out of rainfall. We're in the middle of harvesting palmers and we're about to harvest keat in the next couple of weeks. So we've, um, we've just had to delay some of the harvest but it, at this point it hasn't, uh, it hasn't ruined the crop. We've maybe lost a couple of percent of the crop and um, perhaps our pack out of premium is slightly down um, compared to usual numbers. But the rainfall before Christmas and during December did have a, an impact on our R2E2 and Kensington Pride crop um, because it caused a lot more lenticel spotting, which is not favoured by, um, by our customers. So at this point, we're managing the rain. We're hoping to still get our crop off and maintain our quality. But a lot's gone into that over the last you know six to nine months to make sure that we can we can cope with this you know we've made sure that the nutrient content in the fruit should be okay for these sort of extreme conditions our um, disease management programs in place our weed management programs in place all those things so it's not just about the past four days it's about so many other things that have been happening
5: some people in far north Queensland are saying that this is devastating and it's ended their season Um, I'm hearing a lot more optimism in your voice. So why do you think that is?
10: Well, I I think that, you know, the things that could be devastating and end of season is if the rainfall is so constant that there's no opportunity to go out and harvest when it's not raining Um, or there's, um, you know, disease present in the fruit as it goes through the supply chain. So we're trying to manage both of those issues um, and work with our customers. We work really closely with our customers about specifications and um, timing of our harvest and everything to just make sure we can get through it and get through it together. because remember they, they want our fruit as much as we want as we, we want to harvest it. So um, I think we've done a fair bit of, a fair bit of planning and a bit of budgeting to accept that sometimes you don't get the whole crop and sometimes nature is a bit cruel.
5: And do you think with that rain that you had late last year and that bit of rain now, do you think there'll be any financial impact?
10: Absolutely, yeah. We've had financial impact because we've downgraded some of the fruit that was probably that was definitely looking premium on the trees, and then once we had too much rainfall, um, we had uh, defects and blemishes on it that meant that it had to be downgraded and sent off either for pre-packing or for um, value add. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and, but that has to be, that, from our perspective in our business, we take that into account that not every day or every month or every year can be you know, lucky and easy
1: and perfect. Marie Piconi is the Managing Director of Mambaloo Limited. She was speaking with Lucy Cooper, 5 to 1 on the Country Hour. Now, after almost a year of record high fertiliser prices, the market looks like it's beginning to come back down. Easing off to just under one thousand dollars per ton at some suppliers. Overseas, though, the market, well, the fertilizer market, has dropped even further. It's sitting at just above six hundred dollars per ton. Economic analyst and director of Episode Three dot Net, Andrew Whitelaw, says changes to conditions in the gas market, which is a feedstock for urea, are contributing to the fall.
11: We're starting to see some some good signs. And so if we look at uh, fertilizer prices in the last couple of months, they've come under a lot of pressure. And I'm talking about the fertilizer price, the wholesale price to buy it from the Middle East. We buy most of our urea in Australia from Middle East. You know, this month so far it's trading at about 645 Aussie dollars a ton, free on board. So that $645 is, is a lot lower than it was this time last year when it was closer to $1,100 dollars. So we are seeing a downward slide. But but basically what we've seen is the last year, and uh, last sort of couple of months, it's been a little bit milder, the um, the winter in Europe, which has reduced demand for, for gas. And there's also been a bit of demand destruction as people just couldn't afford to pay the gas prices that were on offer for other industrial or domestic uses. But we're also seeing things like, uh, because of that high price of gas in Europe, we're seeing more cargoes of LNG going from the likes of China into Europe, and so we are seeing uh, what what typically happens in, in economics is that high prices are the cure for high prices. So that is reflect being reflected in, in reducing gas prices and therefore reducing fertilizer prices. However, the big question remains: is how much of that you know overseas fall gets passed on to onto local producers? You know, I imagine fertilizer prices. Whilst they're, they're not that transparent, it's hard to get a price. There's no publicly available data on Australian fertiliser prices. I imagine it's closer to the $1,000 than the uh, you know, the seven $800 a ton mark.
3: Mm, and
7: that's certainly what what we're hearing on the ground, is that while prices have dropped from the standard that they were over the past almost 12 months, they are still around that $1,000 per ton mark. Do you think that they will keep dropping, or is the Australian market... Going to do its own thing.
11: Unfortunately, I think the Australian market probably will do its own thing, and it'll take a long time for those prices to to flow through to the domestic market. Uh, but we shall see. All it takes is uh, you know somebody to come in and you know order a new order more cargoes for the new season, and uh, and them to be priced at a lower lower value, and to be able to price in with you know without having to uh, price in such a large margin. And I guess at the end of the day markets are markets and the lowest price is what wins.
7: Yeah and so you mentioned that as it warms up in Europe that also plays a key factor and it is still fairly solidly winter over there as we do move forward into winter over here and it goes into summer in Europe do you expect those those international prices to keep going down as well?
11: Look the one thing I would say at the moment is we're still dealing in an extremely sort of volatile environment where, where the market is very, very changeable. A lot of, a lot of what happens in these markets are really determined by what is inside Putin's head and what he decides to do on any given day. And so that is the major concern: is we don't really know what will, what will happen. Uh, so it is a fairly uncertain environment. Probably one of the most uncertain environments we've had for for a long period of time. All we can say at the moment is the trend has been downwards for the last couple of months. And all we can do is hope that, you know, some of that gets passed on to uh, to local producers.
1: That's Andrew Whitelaw. He's an economic analyst and director of episode3.net. He was speaking with Alice Marshall. So fertiliser prices are down just under $1,000 per tonne at some suppliers in Australia, um, but overseas about $600 a tonne. So hopefully some good news on the way for you there. We are heading off to the news in just a moment. Next hour, checking in with the Bureau of Meteorology, of course, and looking at fly tags and what they could mean for productivity with your cattle. We'll talk about that after one o'clock, but it is time now for the news. It's one.
2: Hello, my name is Tara Guyamola. I'm from Manmoy. I'm a senior ranger of Watergate Land Management. My favorite job is taking our kids out on country and teaching them and showing them rock art and passing their knowledge. And you're listening to the Country Hour.
1: Hello, hello. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon on the Country Hour before half past one. I wonder whether you've ever had an experience with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Hopefully not, but when you live out the bush, sometimes it's inevitable. When there's an emergency at night, landing can be pretty tricky. In this next half hour, you'll hear how some pastoralists are getting around it.
12: One of the biggest pros is uh, they can stay lit for a long time. I think on the label it says 24 hours. Luckily, we haven't had to use that yet. But the toilet rolls only lasted one hour.
1: You'll hear what they're talking about before half past one. First, though, let's check in with what's happening with the weather. Rebecca Patrick is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. Now, Rebecca, we've had a few drops of rainfall overnight.
0: Yeah, nothing too heavy um, in the 24 hours to 9 a.m. Tennant Creek uh, had the highest rainfall with 28 millimetres. That's from some storms that moved over the area yesterday evening. Um, uh, Apart from that, Saddle Creek in the Gregory District with 24 um, and West Baines River not far behind with 23. Um, yeah, and a bit lighter over the, the top end. But there's a bit
1: to come. There's a severe weather warning out now.
0: Yes, that's right. We've just issued a severe thunderstorm warning for um, heavy rainfall that could lead to flash flooding. Um, that's over southern parts of the Daly District and northern parts of the Gregory District. Um, so, some of those locations that could be affected include Water. Palumpa, Pepinati, Nayu and Timber Creek. Um, so, yeah, if you're in that area, um, just be mindful that there could be um, a bit of rain or water on the roads and, and things like that. How much rain are you expecting around there? Um, so, yeah, there's some there's some pretty significant thunderstorms through that area. Um, they are also producing a fair bit of lightning. In terms of rainfall, um could get some heavier totals. At the moment, uh, um, we've only seen um, at Bradshaw getting up to um, 22 millimetres, but expecting higher rainfall than that um, in that area. Okay. Um, Central Australia, what's happening there for the next few days? Yeah, today, um, that's the other thing worth noting. There is a trough moving through um, the southern parts of the NT today, um, and we are expecting some... some some thunderstorms to develop, uh, particularly across the southwest, which um, could produce some damaging wind gusts with those storms. So just be mindful of that if you're in um, so around the southern Tanami, Lasseter or, or uh, southeast Simpson district, um, that they could be um, some quite gusty storms through that area. And later in the week into the weekend, um, any any more monsoonal activity that we need to be aware of? No, um, quite the opposite, really. Um, so we could get the monsoon trough in the Gulf of Carpentaria. So people over that way, if, if they're planning on heading out in the boat, just be aware of that. There could be um, quite wet conditions out there and some choppy, choppy waters as well, Um but, in terms of monsoon across the northern territory um, not not expected unfortunately um, so that trough is actually expected to move northwards and be north of the the top end um, early next week, which will um, put us in a bit of what we call a monsoon break. Regime, which is pretty much like the build-up. So we'll have sunnier skies, and then just a a chance of a a storm during the afternoon.
1: Oh, great! I'm sure everyone's really excited for that. Uh, (laughs) our, Our
0: temperatures going to get get pretty warm next week. Um, Across the top end, they could pick up a little bit if we see a bit more um, sun around, um, but still just uh, looking at temperatures mainly uh, across the top end getting into the the mid-30s, so um, perhaps increasing a little bit um, across the the weekend and as we go into next week. Uh, And in the south, we are expecting pretty hot temperatures to develop through central districts, so um, getting potentially into the low 40s from about, um, well, from tomorrow, really. um, We're going to see a a little bit of cooling in the southern districts just by two or three degrees, but... Um, yeah, through those central districts, quite hot. Not ideal, Rebecca. Um,
1: <laughs> thank you for the update, though. We'll catch you later on. Uh, Rebecca Patrick from the Bureau of Meteorology.
9: Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Kandinen Group and ABC Rural. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
1: I'm Michelle Stanley with you. It's 11 past one. Researchers at the Department of Industry are using accelerometers and GPS tracking to work out what productivity gains come from using fly tags on cattle. A small mob of cattle at Beatrice Hill Research Station near Middle Point have been fitted with the tags and the technology to track every shake of the livestock's head. Principal Livestock Research Officer Tim Shots explains the trial, which is also looking at fly tag resistance.
6: There's three sort of aspects of the trial at the moment. So, um... One of them is about preventing resistance to fly tags. So um, in America, uh, a lot of the cattle over there are resistant to the fly tags, so basically they don't work anymore, and and we're trying to prevent that, and and a good way of doing that is through rotating the different types of fly tags, um, fly tags with different active ingredients. So when the flies get used to one, you swap to another one but you know you you try and swap before they get um, used to it. So the more different types you can have in your rotation um, the less likely it is that resistance will build up and so here we're trialling a new type of tag and that involves doing weekly fly checks just to see how long the tag keeps the flies off and if it is effective. Um, So that's one aspect of it and then we're also looking at the effect of fly tags on the animals um, productivity and their behaviour. Um, so, we're looking at um, do they, does keeping the flies off them mean that they're le- less active, less swishing of tails and flapping of heads and, and fidgeting around and burning up energy that way? And, and we've found with other trials in the past that yes, we get about an extra 17 kilograms of live weight gain over a wet season um, if we put the tags on. Um, But this year we're doing it in a bit more detail with GPS tracking collars and um, accelerometers to measure all that movement.
13: Uh, And in terms of resistance, have you found that's an issue in the top end?
6: Yeah, they have found that there is um, an area down around um, the Litchfield area, um, around Twin Hills and out to um, Labelle, that sort of area. Um, where there is uh, resistance to one of the types of ear tags, and that's why there is this focus on developing new tags that um, to prevent this resistance.
13: Yeah, and for those who don't know, how do how do
6: fly tags work, and how can they possibly build up resistance? Yeah, so the fly tags are a plastic ear tag that is impregnated with a chemical that repels the um, the insects, the biting insects. Um, And so over time, if you just use those fly tags, and especially if you leave them in longer than than you should, um, the tags become less effective and the chemical is weaker. And the insects, um, because they have a really short breeding cycle, um, the resistant ones um, gradually breed more and more of them. And so resistance develops Whereas if you can keep um, using, pulling out your ear tags um, at the end of their effective life, not just leaving them in there, and then rotating to a different type of tag, uh, that prevents this resistance from, from occurring.
13: And as part of this trial, you're also uh, checking out its effectiveness for three-day sickness. Uh, tell us about that.
6: Yeah, so we've got another trial um, with the fly tags where we are looking at whether they're effective in reducing the incidence of three-day sickness or bovine ephemeral fever. And so with that one, um, we collect um, blood samples at the start and then every month uh, and compare uh, animals with tags to animals without tags and see if the incidence of the disease during that time is different between the tagged ones and the untagged ones. And so where we're going with that, we know that um, lumpy skin disease is a real problem in Indonesia and and the worry is that one day it might come here. And so we're looking at, well, if we can um, prevent Uh, one disease that's spread through these biting insects or vectors um, perhaps that will have a role in protecting against uh, lumpy skin as well so uh, that's where that research is sort of the impetus behind it and and that's what we're looking at there.
13: Yeah and that's uh, that sounds like a really important uh, step to be taking because uh, yeah the concern with lumpy skin is not if but when it's on its way so uh, that could potentially be a, a
6: weapon in the arsenal against it. Yeah that's right and look we don't know yet exactly which of the insects are the, the vectors for lumpy skin, and we know that um, ear tags are mainly effective against buffalo flies and probably less so against midges and, and mozzies, but um, if it does reduce the spread of it, even if, if it halved it, it's still uh, very beneficial um, to have it as another tool in, in our weaponry against this disease.
13: We've also got uh, Gretel Bailey-Preston here, uh, one of the research officers uh, who's doing the work on the ground uh, as part of this trial. Um, There is some high-tech sort of stuff happening with these fly tags. Tell us about the accelerometers and and the GPS and what they're doing.
14: Yeah, so... Um, we've got three treatment groups so we've got two different types of tags and a control group and on all three groups we've put accelerometer tags as well as gps collars Um, this is to try and look at well the accelerometer specifically they're to look at um, activity so it measures um, up and down and side to side movement so as they're on their on their head on like obviously on their ear um, it measures when they flick their head around especially you know swatting away flies um, and even walking around more to try and um, keep the flies away from them and so this is why we also use the GPS with the same animals to try and, you know, we can look at whether they're actually walking as well, for the movement is walking as well, or it's just standing still and shaking the head to try and match that up. Um, Yeah, so we've got that on all three treatments just so we can measure the control group who's got no fly tags. Theoretically, they would be um, moving their head around a lot more, moving around the paddock a lot more, very restless because they've got flies attacking them all the time, whereas the fly tag trial, we're trying to look at the difference between the two tags to see if one's better than the other. Um, but yeah, they should be, you know, more relaxed, just calmly grazing and, you know, normal, normal activities rather than trying to swap flies away all the time.
13: And why is that less, less movement, um, important for, for the cattle?
14: So, using up, try, yeah, less movement is important to use up less energy. Um, so we're looking, trying to looking for weight gain. So if they're flying, you know, walking around and shaking their head to get rid of flies all the time, they're going to be using up more energy and losing weight or not putting on as much weight as they should be, especially over the wet season.
13: So, at the end of all of this, uh, what do you hope cattle producers might get out of this research?
14: So we're just trying to. well, I guess we're trying to work out. Um, you know, obviously, fly tags keep the t- um, flies away. We're just trying to work out if how much productivity benefit you can gain by using the fly tags. Um, you know, and obviously, we can look at weight, and it has been looked at in the past. Um, differences in weight gain, but now we can also look at actual activity. Um, you know, what they're actually doing and how they're moving around the paddock um, to try and explain that a bit more, as well as like you know, as well as the weight gain.
1: It's Gretel Bailey-Preston. She's a Livestock Research Officer with the Department of Industry, speaking with Dan Fitzgerald about these trials to work out productivity gains from using fly tags. It's 19 past one. Uh, Here is Brooks and Dunn. It's called Red Dirt Road. Brooks and Dunn, Red Dirt Road. On January 26, across the ABC, we reflect, respect and
5: celebrate what it means to be Australian. Join us for the Woogalora morning ceremony, national citizenship and flag raising ceremony, a special edition of The Drum, exploring an Indigenous perspective, and the spectacular Australia Day live concert with some of our best Aussie artists. Join us January 26 from 7.30am on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview.
11: Hi, uh, I'm Natalino. I'm from Estimo. I'm coming here for third time in Australia. Uh, watermelon farm in Alicoron. I mean, and listen to that country hours.
1: Yes, you are. It's twenty four past one. Michelle Stanley's with you. Burning toilet paper rolls soaked in diesel have long been an essential on remote stations to help guide the Royal Flying Doctor Service to runways at night time during emergencies. But an innovation from a southwest Queensland-based pilot is hoping to change that in order to make the landing in the dark both easier and more reliable. Danielle Lancaster has the story.
15: For pilots of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, navigating tricky landings in some of the most remote parts of the country comes with Territory. But racing against time to retrieve a very sick or injured patient in the dead of night adds pressure to the job, especially when the bush runway needs to be manually lit for the planes to take off and land safely. After a hairy emergency retrieval near Petuta in far western Queensland, Charleville-based senior pilot Nick Tully knew something had to change.
9: We had some logistical issues around getting some runway lights set up and I was approached by a station owner who was unhappy with his current system using um, the battery lights, battery-powered LED lights. Um, Mainly issues around batteries and maintenance and complacency. And being remote, it's hard to get supplies and and that sort of thing from as well, and parts.
15: Through his own research, Nick Tully found a solution in something that's been around since the 1800s. Diesel lanterns were once used to warn approaching vehicles of roadworks before electricity began replacing candles. These lanterns can be seen from the air up to 48 kilometres away and all they require is fuel and a match.
9: Basically a station can can purchase a kit, have it sitting down the back of the shed, it's in a known location, Uh, all the instructions and lighting instructions, setting up instructions, questions around what RFDS pilots will ask station owners when they're coming in will all be provided within the kit. And because they are low-maintenance, every, every station has diesel, every station has a match, and that's all required. So it can sit down at the back of the shed for umpteenth years, and when it's needed, it can be pulled out and set up very quickly.
15: Pilots tested the lanterns, sourced from the Netherlands, during night training at Wuru Station, south of Quilpie, with great success. Station owner and mother of three, Laura Trust, was only too happy to help, knowing full well the challenges of remote living.
3: When we were setting them out, Obviously, there's two sides to an airstrip. We had our eldest child walking along one side, and my husband was on the other, just walking along, lighting it. And so that was great. You just you walk up, and both sides are lit at the same time. Really simple.
15: After her first retrieval, when her then son was only 18 months old and broke his leg, Miss Trust said she knew what to expect. However, no two emergencies are the same.
3: It's all a bit daunting at the time, but you really just feel like you're in safe hands and as soon as they got there, obviously they knew what was going on and you feel confident that they do and that you are, you're going to get to a safe place and get him the help he needs.
15: For Heidi McKenzie, who lives on Plevner Downs, 100 kilometres west of Aramanga, the lanterns will mean smoother sailing during emergencies. The last night retrieval at her cattle and sheep station was in April 2021 when a staff member was injured in a motorbike crash.
12: One of the biggest pros is uh, they can stay lit for a long time. I think on the label it says 24 hours. Luckily, we haven't had to use that yet. But the toilet rolls only lasted one hour. So if you, for some reason, had a problem in the air and had to re-land, the toilet rolls wouldn't stay alight for long enough. Yeah, so there's less time constraints using the lanterns and I suppose you can have them pre-prepared, filled with diesel so that all you're having to do on the night is use a lighter to light each one up and set them up. So I suppose it takes one step out of the process when you're under pressure.
15: An RFDS guiding lights appeal has raised more than $200,000 and delivered 30 lighting kits to stations around Queensland so far. The goal is to make a very stressful and difficult situation slightly easier for those on the ground and those in the air.
1: Danielle Lancaster ending that report. it's 28 past one So now to check in on the cattle markets. John Traeger has the results from Dublin in South Australia.
2: Good afternoon. Quality was fair to good as agents offered 250 live weight and open oxen cattle. Competition was fair as prices settled around the easier trend of the previous sale. Ealing steers range from 362 to 430 cents as ealing heifers sold from 250 to 364 cents with one sale to 408 cents. Grown steers sold from 200 to 350 cents with grown heifers selling from 232 to 340 cents. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour.
1: That is it for the Country Hour today. Now, we are back to normal tomorrow. Uh, So if you tend to listen on your analogue radio, you can do that again tomorrow from half past 12. But if you were listening today and missed anything in the first half of the show, just know you can always listen back. If you tune in to the podcast, you can get it online on the ABC Listen app or wherever you tend to listen to your podcasts. Just search NT Country Hour. That is it from me today. I'll catch you tomorrow from half past
0: 12.